Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, real easy to find, the second book of your Bible, the book of Exodus chapter 17. I preached through the book of Exodus back, golly, probably eight years, nine years or so ago, I guess now, and uh, I just felt compelled to move through that book. And when I began to read through that and to really study that book, it is, it is really amazing. If you've never sat down to read through the book of Exodus, I'm telling you, you're going to be tempted to think that the earlier you go in the Old Testament, the more dry and boring it's going to be. That is not the case with the book of Exodus. When you begin to move through that, you learn an awful lot about God, and you learn an awful lot about, <laughs> about, about people uh, at the same time as well. And one of the things we see in the book of Exodus is that God fights for his people. God is a God who not only pursues us, like we were reminded of in uh, the testimony for Ashley's baptism, but God is a God who fights for his people. And we live in a culture that is, uh, that, is, that is very heavily influenced by victory. I mean, we all aim for victory. Some of us have a little bit of a competitive streak at times, and we like to, to aim towards you know, winning and aim towards victory. You know, we have a company in, in America, uh, Nike, that is, is named after the Greek word. The Greek word is Nike. We say Nike, but it's named for the word victory in the Greek language. And so we are consumed by those who win? If you win on a ball field, you get a championship ring. If you, you know, if you win in the workplace, you get a promotion, or you get recognized, or you get a pin, or you get a bonus, or whatever. You know, victory is something that we recognize. If you win on a battlefield, you get a parade, and people sing your praises, and and uh, and they they make monuments to you, and, and and we understand what victory means. But you know, my question today, as we prepare to look into this passage of scripture. What if the victory that you need has nothing to do with a ball field? And what if the victory that you really, really need in your life today has nothing to do with a battlefield? In fact, what if the victory that you really need in your life, that greatest area of struggle where you have a tendency to feel as though you're never going to win, you're never going to overcome, what if that victory that you need doesn't even have much to do with your effort? But what if it has almost everything to do with your trust? For some of you, you face battles today. Those battles may take place under the roof of your own home. You may battle issues related to issues of the heart. You may face a temptation or you may face an addiction. You may face some struggle that has come in your life and you've tried everything that you can to bring victory. And you have exerted as much self-effort as you could possibly exert, and yet maybe you've lost sight of a very simple truth in Scripture. And we're going to see that demonstrated today in Exodus chapter 17. Well, you've, if you brought your Bibles, hopefully you've already turned there. If you didn't, then we've got it on the overhead for you to read through. I don't want you to ever get in the habit of not bringing or using your Bible. I really hesitated for a long time to even put the passages that, that I preach on the overhead. Some of you have heard, we've had discussions about that. And the reason that I've really hesitated to do that is because I don't want people to get lazy and I don't want you to get soft and not bring your Bibles and not learn to study them and use them for yourselves. But I think there is value in being able to read all of us collectively what God's Word says. And so what I want us to look at this morning is a passage in Exodus 17 that is, and I'll just go ahead and say, this is a very dramatic passage of Scripture. If you've read through the Bible cover to cover, you've read this, but you probably maybe forgot about it. It's very dramatic, but it's not one that a lot of people are familiar with. And what it lays out for us is a picture of a battle, and it shows us what our part is in the midst of that battle and what God's part is in the midst of that battle. 
And so the setting is the people of Israel, and they have just been set free from the land of Egypt. Now you remember, if you've studied Old Testament history at all, that the people of Israel had been in Egypt for a long, long time. And as they were in Egypt, they were fruitful, and they multiplied, and they grew, and they expanded as a nation of people. And as they grew and as they expanded, they experienced more and more and more oppression under the people of Egypt. They were not there in the land of Egypt as honored guests. They were there basically to perform the labor that the people of Egypt desired, specifically Pharaoh. They were treated very, very poorly, and they longed for freedom. They longed to be set free from this oppression that they experienced. Well, God would raise up a leader. His name was Moses. And Moses, at the age of 80, roughly, would be the one that God would use to set these people, the people of Israel, free from Egyptian bondage. So here they come, two million strong. They've set out from the land of Egypt. They're making their way across the promised land. Exodus chapter 14 lays out for us how God dramatically set them free. They crossed the Red Sea. Uh, you remember that from the movie, right, Charlton Heston? They crossed the Red Sea. Chapter 15, they're singing praises to God. They're writing songs. They're highlighting God's glory and praising God for setting them free. Chapter 16, they're already complaining. We ain't got nothing to eat here, and so God gives manna. Chapter 17, the early part, they're complaining. We need something to drink here, and so God provides for them again. Well, that's where we are, Exodus chapter 17. So we are pretty early in on their journey through the wilderness. It would be a 40-year journey. It shouldn't have taken nearly that long for them to cross the wilderness and make it into the promised land. But because of their disobedience, that journey would take 40 years. And what we see here in Exodus chapter 17 is going to be their first military engagement that they ever had as the people of God. They never once had a military engagement during their time in the land of Egypt. You may say, oh, but what about crossing the Red Sea? Hey, they didn't have to pick up one single weapon because God engulfed the nation, of the, the, the soldiers of the land of, Israel, of, of uh, Egypt as they crossed the Red Sea. This, in Exodus 17, is going to be their first military engagement, and you're going to learn something amazing as we read through this passage of Scripture. So let's go ahead and bring it up on the overhead. Exodus chapter 17, we're going to begin in verse 8. And as I read through, I'm going to explain a little bit as we go. And so verse 8, it says, Then Amalek came, and they fought against Israel at Rephidim. Now you may wonder, who is Amalek? Well, we don't know hardly anything at all, literally, of this nation of people, the, uh, the Amalekites, the people of Amalek. We don't know hardly anything of them outside of what we learn in Scripture. What we do know is that this nation of people, the people of Amalek, were noted enemies of Israel for a long, long time. They were the thorn in the side of the people of Israel. They never were in alliance with Israel. They always were against Israel. And we see that demonstrated right here even in Exodus chapter 17. Now there's a little bit of info that's going to come. You don't have to turn here. But in the book of Deuteronomy, what we find here is that we get a little insight as to what the people of Amalek did to the people of Israel here in this context. Listen to what it says. It says, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. So here's what the people of Amalek did. They saw two million strong Israelites trucking it across the wilderness, across the desert. And as they're trucking it across the desert, the people of Amalek were opportunists, and they were enemies, and they did not fear God. They were a pagan nation. And so they looked at these two million strong Israelites, and they said, we can take advantage of these people. And as is often the case, what they found at the back of that long caravan were those that were older, those that were younger, those that were weaker, those that were in poor health, and they began to make their attack at that point. 
Again, they're not going to be a, 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 a huddled mass of people, you know, just this one little blob of people making their way across the, the Sinai Peninsula. These were Israelites, two million strong. They were just scattered all over that desert floor. And inevitably, through their journey, the weaker and the older and the sicker are going to make their way to the back. And as they did that, that's exactly where Amalek chose to attack them. And so they come from the rear, and they provoke this attack. Israel did nothing to bring it on. They didn't ask for this fight. They didn't go pick a fight, you know, like that fellow on the, on the, uh, you know, on the playground back when you were a kid. He'd, he'd always egg you on, and he would always know just what buttons to push to kind of bring on a fight. The, Israel didn't ask for this. Hey, they're just trucking across the, across the desert, and here comes the, the people of Amalek, and they fight against Israel. Verse 9, it says, so Moses says to Joshua, now let me just stop there. Two people introduced here. Moses, you already know about. He's the leader of the people of Israel at this point. He's the one who led them across the Red Sea. He's the one that got equipped through 40 years watching sheep on the backside of the desert to bring the people of Israel across the wilderness. You know Moses. Moses says to Joshua, who's Joshua? Same one you're going to read about in the book of Joshua. Only he's about 45 years old now. He's undoubtedly a military leader, and he's one that Moses trusted greatly. And so Moses says to Joshua, choose men for us, go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow, I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, let me just stop there for a second. Is there anything that strikes you as a little bit odd about that statement in verse 9? Let me reframe it this way. If you were Joshua, would there be anything that strikes you as a little bit odd about this statement in verse 9? Because if I was Joshua, I would be a little tempted to, to have a conversation like this. Okay, so Moses, let me get this right. You want me to go down in the valley. That, that, that's right. And you want me to go down where the bad guys are. That's right. And where are you going to be, Moses? Well, I'm going to be up on top of the hill. Okay, so, and, and I'm going to have a sword. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And what are you going to have? Well, I'm going to have the staff of God. Okay, this is looking really good for me. I'm going down into the valley where the bad guys are. They're wanting to chop my head off. They're wanting to bring all kind of badness against me. And there's going to be a big bad battle down there. And let me get this straight. You're going to be up on a hilltop, and you're going to have two other guys with you, and uh, everything's going to be okay. And Moses would say, that's exactly right. And all this is going down tomorrow. Moses says. So tomorrow I'll station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. What is the significance of the staff of God? Now this is not an allegory. This is true, actual, factual history. This is a historical account. It went down exactly like the Bible tells us. It's not an allegory. There's not all these little symbols. But when we get to the staff of God, there was some symbolism there. Because you may remember early in the book of Exodus, you remember when Moses went before Pharaoh and, and he, would, he would tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Remember Charlton Heston, let my people go. And he would come before Pharaoh. God gave Moses a staff. And God would often do miraculous works through that staff. There was a point where Moses, you may remember this, he was in front of Pharaoh and God said, toss the staff down. And he tossed it down and it became a snake. Moses said, or God told Moses, pick up the, the snake by the tail, which you never do. But when God says it, you do it. So he picked it up and God turned it back into a staff. God did amazing things through that staff. And it wasn't about the staff. It was about the power and the presence of God. And so this staff of God represented, it represented visually for the people of God that God was with them, God was for them, and God could do anything he well pleased. And so there is Moses, commanded by God to go to the top of the hill to hold the staff of God in his hand. And whenever he would do this, it would be the focal point for the soldiers in the valley. It'd be their focal point to fight 
knowing that God was for them and not against them. Verse 10, Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, who was his brother, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Next slide. So it says, verse 11, so it came about when Moses held his hand up. This word gets really, really just interesting. So when Moses held his hand up with the staff, that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. So I wonder who figured this out first. You know, you hold it up. Hey, we're doing really good. Let it down. No, we're not so good. Hold it up. Doing good. Put it down. Not so good. You know, I wonder who figured this out first. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it's very clear that whenever the staff of God, representative of the power and the presence of God, was held up for all to see, Israel basically took care of business, and they were jotting down names. And they, whenever the staff would go down, they were on the receiving end of, uh, of great defeat. And so it says, verse 12, but Moses' hands were weary. We can relate to this, can't we? Because there are battles that you face. I think you're probably already beginning to understand that we probably won't set foot outside the doors of this place on a battlefield, but you will be entering a war. You know this, correct? Some of you will step foot on, as soon as you cross the threshold of your house. You will be in a war zone because things have, have declined to that point in your marriage. Some of you will step foot into your workplace or in a relationship, and you will be stepping foot onto a battlefield, not, deli- not delineated by geographical boundaries, but you will be in the midst of a battle. Some of you are facing right now addictions in your life. Some of you are facing temptations in your life. Some of you are facing issues in regards to your self-worth and your self-esteem because of what you've been through and because of what you've experienced, and you have a hard time understanding God's truth and replacing the enemy's lies with what God said. You know, all kinds of battles that we face. And whenever we go through those battles, there are times that we just get really, really tired. One of the things I learned from this passage just up to this point is that we often face battles that we didn't do anything to ask for. Battles like I've just described. Oh, some of them, we bring them on ourselves. But there are a lot of times we face a battle, we didn't ask for it. (laughs) It finds us. And there are times in the midst of that battle where we just get tired. Verse 12, Moses' hands were heavy. And so they took a stone, this is Aaron and Hur, and they put it under him. I'm sure it was the most comfortable stone they could find. And Moses sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, and one on the other. I know you never got in trouble in school back in the day, but I'm sure you had a lot of friends that did. (laughs) That was very diplomatic, by the way. And you may remember, whenever we'd get in trouble in school, it was always, you know, just quack, quack, quack. I don't know. And the ones who'd give us the quack, quack, quack took pride in the quacker. (laughs) They'd like sign names on it and all kinds of stuff. But there was a day maybe when you you didn't experience that. And there would be that that kid who did wrong. I'm sure it wasn't you. And you'd get put on the front of the classroom and you'd have to hold a very heavy book off the teacher's desk in one hand and a very heavy book off the teacher's desk in the other. You ever seen that? And and after just a few minutes of that, that book gets heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. And And this is exactly what was happening for Moses. He's on the top of the hilltop. and, and, And what you've already understood is that what happened on the hilltop dictated what took place in the valley right you see this in this passage don't you that what took place on the hilltop the action up on the hilltop directly influenced the outcome down in the valley and as Moses is holding up the staff of God in his hand he is in his 80s at this point 
The staff of God was probably not just some small little sliver of wood. It probably had just a little bit of weight to it. This battle is going on all day long, as you see at the end of verse 12. Moses' hands would get heavy, and so his supporters, Aaron and Hur, who were up there with him for that sole reason, would take one on one hand, one on the other, and they would help him to hold the staff of God, symbolic of the power and the presence of God, to hold it high so that in the valley, those who looked to him would be able to experience victory as a result. And so it says, Aaron and Hur, verse 12, supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other. Thus, his hands were steady until the sun set. And so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Next verse. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial. Recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. That's exactly what God would do. For Samuel 15, under the leadership of Saul, the first king of the nation of Israel, that would take a significant step in that direction. David would finish the work, basically. And God would fulfill it. He said, well, that, that, there you go. God of the Old Testament woke up on the wrong side of the bed, mad, angry, wicked, no grace, always mad at people, always looking to zap somebody. No, 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 no. God is a God of extreme love, but God is also a God of complete justice and judgment. And we have to remember, before we look at a passage like this and we interpret it as, there you go, there's that God of the Old Testament, there he goes again, no grace whatsoever. Let me just ask this question. Did we deserve a second breath after we sinned the first time in the Garden of Eden? <laughs> if we feel like we do, we have a, a, a badly contorted view of what sin truly is. Sin is an absolute slap in the face of a God who is perfectly holy, creator of God, who in the first generation experienced rebellion in his creation. And we don't deserve a second breath to begin with. We don't deserve a second chance. We don't deserve even being able to be born today, 6,000 years after Adam and Eve walked this earth. And so whenever we read passages like this and we say, look at God, so mad, so mean, always angry, always wanting to judge people. No, this was a nation of people who had every opportunity to approach the people of Israel in search of their God, but instead approach them as an enemy against their God. They were a pagan nation wicked to the core, who chose to attack God's people and in so doing attacked God at the same time. And this was the time ultimately when judgment would come. So we can't say God's mean, wicked, nasty. No, uh, every breath we take is an act of grace. And so Moses, God would promise, verse 14, to blot out the memory of Amalek. That's exactly what he would do later in the Old Testament. And then verse 15, this is where it all comes together. Verse 15, Moses builds an altar and he names it, the Lord is my banner. And he says, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. What does that phrase mean, the Lord is my banner? It sounds kind of funny for us today, doesn't it? Reading it thousands of years later. Because we look at it and we think, okay, so what they do? They just like print it off a big banner, you know, on the computer? Do they run down to, you know, Kinko's and just print off some big giant banner? And woohoo, the Lord is our banner, you know, wave the banner. That's not what it's talking about. In fact, more literally, we could say there's a Hebrew name there. It's Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. Literally, the Lord is my rallying point. That's what that means. If you ever played football, you remember you come running out of the tunnel, cheerleaders are going crazy, the fans are going crazy, and uh, just before kickoff, what happens? Your coach huddles you up, and you get all around there, and you... you uh, you know, you got your, your pads on, you got your helmet on, and there's one fella in the center. It's either your coach or it's going to be with a captain, and he's going to hold a helmet in the air, and that helmet is what? The rallying point. 
that says, in just a few minutes, we're going to kick this ball off and we're going to strap it on and we're going to go out and we're going to take care of business. And that helmet is the rallying point. If you've ever been to a college ball game or high school for that matter, you get to the fourth quarter, everybody's got four in the air, right? It's the rallying point. We own the conclusion of this game. If you ever look on a battlefield back in the day, you've got the general sword out of its sheath held high as he's there on that horseback and that sword is the rallying point from nation to nation to nation it does not matter what the nation is there is a focal point a rallying point it's called the flag and in our nation's history there have been times there are still depictions to this day of monuments and carvings and paintings that have been made that show that flag as the rallying point and what happens here is at the end of this of this battle Moses builds an altar and he names the Lord as the rallying point. In other words, he doesn't build a monument as many churches sadly choose to do where they name their buildings after people (laughs) because Moses knew he did not deserve to be the rallying point. Oh, he was the man on the hill, but he wasn't the author of the victory. It wasn't about Joshua down on the battlefield orchestrating with military genius this defeat as a result of of an enemy attacking them who were very skilled in what they did, attacking a group of people, the Israelites, who just previously had been slaves in a foreign land, had nothing to know about how to fight a battle, and yet Joshua led them to victory. But he knew Joshua was not the focal point of this victory. They knew it had nothing to do with Joshua, nothing to do with Moses, had nothing to do with Aaron or her or a rock or a hilltop. It had everything to do with the fact that God fought for his people. In a battle, they had no hope of winning. And so we learn a lot about ourselves, don't we, in this passage. We learn that we fight battles in life. We learn that in those battles we get weary. We learn that we need each other. Galatians 6 says to bear one another's burdens. You know, for some, your marriage may be in such poor condition that you're actually fighting at war with the very person that you have forgotten you desperately need. (laughs) We have a tendency to do that, don't we? It's the beauty of the body of Christ that God gives us people on our side. To remind us that the battle is the Lord's. And so as we look through this passage, we learn a lot about ourselves. But but don't miss this. We also learn something about God as well. It's the principle that I want us to focus on as we close out this morning. And I hope you'll jot it down. The principle is this. That God is our only legitimate source of victory in the battles in our own lives. There's a balance here, isn't there? I don't know the battle that you face. I don't know if it's a battle against that addiction. I don't know if it's anger issues, pornography issues. I don't know if it's self-worth issues. I don't know what your battle is. I don't know if it's a, a marriage problem that you face. I don't know if it's a child that's breaking your heart. I, no idea. I don't know if you've been treated unfairly, if you face some form of oppression. No idea. But I do know this, is that there will be a point where you cannot kick up your feet and just expect that God is going to fight every battle for you. These Israelites had to do business in the valley. And there are times where we have to just get dirty 
fight the battles ourselves. If I face a temptation in my life, I can't just expect that I can live life with no boundaries, and that I can live life with no guardrails in my life, and that God is going to take care of me. No. That, that's, that's foolish. And I will fall harder and faster than anyone else if I do that. We fight our battles. But listen, there is also a balance there in understanding that if we're going to face victory, it is absolutely ludicrous to think that we can win the victories and the battles we face void of God's presence and power in our lives. It will not happen. And here's what what Christians often lose sight of, is that we often lose sight of the fact that we must have, in the midst of our battles, a total, reckless, abandoned dependence upon God that begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. It begins there, but it doesn't end there. And every day, as we face battles, many of which we didn't ask for, we are reminded again that we cannot make it unless we have a reckless, abandoned mentality of dependence on God for who he is. If I was in the middle of the ocean and I was 100 miles out from the closest land and my ship had sunk and all I had was a little life vest to be able to cling to, a little uh, lifesaver, a little ring, you know, that fell off the boat, you know what? I'm going to be clinging to that with everything that I'm worth. You will have to pry that thing away from my cold, dead hand to separate me from that. Why? Because it is my life and in the midst of that raging ocean, and I will die without it. And it is much the same in our relationship with God in regards to the battles we face. What often happens in the lives of Christians is that we face our battles, and we take them less seriously than we should, and we allow addictions to run us, we allow relationships to run amok and to just absolutely run aground and shipwreck. We allow so many things to control our lives, and we never even realize that we're in the midst of a battle for our lives. And the thing, what, what, what we choose to do last is to try to bring God into the mix. And yet for the people of Israel, what they understood was first and foremost, before the battle even started, Moses says, tomorrow (laughs) I'm going to head up to the top of that hill. I'm going to have the staff of God in my hand. You're going to be reminded of his power, reminded of his presence. And when you look to me, and it's not about the staff, but about him, when you keep that in focus, he will fight for you. And he does it still today. And so my question what battle? What battle do you fight? Who are you leaning on to help give you strength? And are you totally, completely, recklessly abandoned in your dependence upon God? Not an easy belief, oh, just trust Him and it'll be okay. No. Trusting Him to the point to where you know that without him, all hope is lost. It's that kind of dependence that sends us to his word, not once or twice a week, but consistently. It's that kind of dependence that takes us to our knees, not just to say a blessing over food, but to pray and to even beg that he intervene on our behalf. It's that kind of dependence that gets our head up on the darkest of days, knowing that he's with us, despite our circumstances. And that even though victory may come in a season, day by day, he's good, we're fine, and he will prevail. For those who don't have a relationship with God, you know what? The greatest battle that you'll ever face, the battle for life, the battle for forgiveness, has already been fought. And it was fought by Jesus. 
And when he died in your place and he rose again three days later, he paved the pathway for you to know God forever. And what he calls you to do is not to work for your salvation. Mm -mm. You don't fight for salvation. But you trust and completely depend upon Jesus. Turning from sin and inviting him in to take over. And at that point, the greatest relationship you'll ever know will begin. And the battles that you face in the days to come will be fought from victory. Because you belong to God. Let's pray. Lord, I look across this room today and I think statistics would prove, Lord, that there are significant battles that are being fought, probably by more people than we could even realize. Lord, we don't know what battles lie ahead for us. We don't know what may attack us without us even knowing that it was coming. And yet we're so much better off if we can just remember today that you're a God who fights for his people. You're a God who holds victory in your hand. And that you're a God who deserves our total, complete dependence. And that it's not about the little things that we sometimes cling to. Lord, you are our life. You are our hope. You are our victory. And it does not matter if it's an addiction or if it's a marital issue or someone that is bringing hurt into our lives or some form of oppression or whatever it may be. And Lord, it's not about knowing the right words to say or, or jumping through hoops or going to church or giving money or saying, doing any of those things. Lord, it's not about that. It's about depending completely and totally upon you and having people in our lives to lean on who can help us to carry the burdens that we face. But Lord, at the end of the day, you are our banner. You are our rallying point. And Lord, the victories that come in our lives, we may have partnered with you and we may have put forth the effort but Lord, it was you who won. And so I pray for hope for those, God, who struggle today. I pray for those who don't know Christ, that right where they sit this morning, that they'll pray and invite Jesus to come in, forgive them, and to take over everything. But God, whatever we've learned today, may we be faithful to live it out and to trust in you and to want with you and to pursue you with all of our heart. And God, in advance, by faith, we thank you for the victories that you bring and for the good that you do in us. Bless now these decisions that are made, we pray. And may you get the honor for them. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.